Okay, everybody, we are back. This is Rabbi David Foreman, and I am joined once again with my compadre in arms, Imu Shalev. Imu, can you hear me out there in Teaneck land? What? Speak up. <laughs> All right, he can. Okay, Imu, the last time you and I talked, we kind of went through the backstory of Mara. We came up with a lot of interesting stuff, but now it's time to go through the story itself. What I'd like to do with you, if we can, is just take a quick inventory of our outstanding questions on the story. Maybe we'll do this responsibly. Your question. My question. My turn. What do the laws have to do with anything? Why is there this uh, great commercial advertisement for laws? If somehow, if you follow all the laws and the sicknesses that God put on Egypt, you're not going to get, got to follow the laws. What does that have to do with the tree? What does it have to do with the water? What does that have to do with them being bitter? Yep. And uh, along those lines, God also makes another passing reference to law. It sounds like God actually gave them some laws, although we don't really hear what the laws are. If you gave them laws, how come we don't hear about the laws? And maybe we can begin with the question of laws. So maybe an, an opening into this is to get back to this question of what exactly was the nature of the sickness that was placed on Egypt? Because God's referencing that sickness that I placed upon Egypt. Again, the language of the text is, if you listen to my laws and you keep my words, then all the sickness that I placed upon Egypt, I will not place upon you, suggests at least to me that in God's eyes, what the people are afflicted with is something that's a close cousin of the Machla Sher And I think by way of explanation, we can just go back to what that Machla was, right? We made the case that it, the Plague of Blood really was a Machla. It was a mind game that God inflicted upon the Egyptians. We're never really sure whether it was, it was them or whether it was the water. The fish are dying, so it looks like it's the water. But on the other hand, the Israelites are drinking it, so it looks like it, it, it's all on their heads. And deep down, the argument we made was that the Egyptians are suffering from a Lady Macbeth syndrome right? They're looking at their hands and they see blood because there is blood on their hands, because the water really is blood, because there's something that is haunting them and that something is guilt. Now, here's the thing. If guilt is what is haunting the Egyptians, what that suggests is what's haunting the Israelites is also guilt. Pharaoh sought to inflict a kind of terrible survivor's guilt. But here's the thing. If you think about survivor's guilt, it is the least rational kind of guilt there is. There's something about the human psyche, though, when it comes to survivor's guilt, right? I didn't do anything. I've just existed, but yet I feel guilty. And what God seems to be saying is, is that there's a difference between your guilt and the Egyptian's guilt. Your guilt is a phantom. Egyptian guilt is real. And now, Imu, if you look at this language over here, you keep my mitzvot. What's particularly chilling is if you think about God as a king who commands things, mm-hmm. well, what other king other than God ever commanded anything in this story? Mm-hmm. Pharaoh. It was Pharaoh. And what was his great and terrible command? His great and terrible command was a command of genocide, of throwing babies in the Nile. And it's that exact same language in Hebrew. Vayitzav Pharaoh commanded. And by the way, this begins to give us an inkling into the stick in the water thing. It doesn't completely explain it, but chillingly, if you look at this story of, of casting the tree in the water at Mara, it also evokes the great command of Pharaoh. 
Vayoreu Hashem Eitz Vayashlech Alamayim, the text says, God showed Moshe this tree, and he hurled it into the water. Vayoreu Vayashlech, Vayoreu Vayashlech. It actually reminds us of the very first commands of another corrupt and evil king in the story, not the commands of God, but the commands of Pharaoh. Vayitzav para lechol amolemor, kol haben hayelud, hayeora tashlichuhu. How do you spell Yeora? Yud, Aleph, Vav, Resh, Hey. How do you spell Vayorehu? Yud, Vav, Resh, Hey. Almost exactly the same, just a silent Aleph is a difference. And the verb that Pharaoh says, hurl them in the water. Babies hurled in the water. Kol abena yulud hayora tashlichuhu. God, Vayorehu Hashem eitz vayashlech hurl it into the water. There's something about God who's issuing this command over here a command to, to hurl this tree in the water rather than a command to hurl babies in the water. Now, God is basically distinguishing himself by the nature of his commands. God is basically saying, you can listen to my commands and you will never be afflicted with the machla that afflicted Egypt, guilt. This is amazing. It sounds like you're saying that this decree that Pharaoh said, this mitzvah, right? It was a mitzvah of Pharaoh. We don't think of that word mitzvah as a as a command, you think of mitzvah sort of as these, these godly precepts. Do. Yeah. And by the way, in, in society, isn't that how it works? When you think about that which is legal, that which is mandated by society, and you think that that which is moral and upright and just, in a normal, well-functioning society, those two things go together. Mm-hmm. But look how twisted that becomes in Egypt. So the king comes on the radio, right, and says, we have a national security concern. These vermin need to be exterminated, right? And to throw them in the water. And trust me, right? Trust me. This is what's necessary. This is good. This is legal. This is required. It's a, it's, a, it's a mitzvah. We don't think about a mitzvah as a command. We think about a mitzvah as a good deed. This is good. Mm-hmm. It's hard. It requires mm-hmm. sacrifice, right? It's not easy to throw little babies in the water, but this is what greater Egypt demands. And this is what I ask of you. And so, Imu, if, if an Egyptian thinking, yes, I'm just doing the right thing, right? Could they escape guilt for that? Could they sleep at night? And you got to understand something is that, you know, there's a little king and there's a big king. The little king here is Pharaoh. And Pharaoh issued commands and his commands were terrible. You need to know something about me. I'm a king. I'm a big king. I'm the king of kings. My mitzvot are good mitzvot. There's no guilt in following my commands. My commands are good commands. You can trust them. And I would even go so far as to suggest that my commands are more than not guilt-inducing. They are themselves curative. Let's talk about this strange puzzle of here are these commands, but there's no commands. Sham sam lo chokumishpat. Here God placed commands. And yet, we don't even hear what the commands are. How come we don't hear what those commands are? And so my instinct was that if there was a command that's mentioned, and yet there is no command mentioned, that it has to almost be an implicit command. A command that's just implicit, what happened to them? The people just came out of Egypt. Coming out of Egypt itself places a command before you. What is the great implicit command of, of coming out of Egypt? And the Torah over and over again 
harks back to what the fundamental command of coming out of Egypt. There's one command that the Torah will always go back to as a rationale for the command. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, right? What is the great command that we have that remember that you were the slaves in Egypt, right? And therefore, X, right? What command is that? That command, of course, is love the strangers because you know what it was like to be a stranger in Egypt, right? This command is going to be articulated over and over again in the Torah, right? But here's this moment where the command is simply put to them just as a result of what it is they've experienced. And it seems to me that perhaps there's something about this command that is curative. Why? Because here's this bitterness. It's almost like all of the terrible bitterness that we experienced in Egypt. It's all laying there in this bitter oasis of water. And the water is fine, but the people are imputing their bitterness on the water. They're seeing these flashbacks of the Nile. They can't drink. They're consumed by guilt. They're consumed by the bitterness and the pain and the suffering. I feel so, so terrible and guilty. And God says, okay, you got to drink this water. You've got to bring this bitterness inside of you somehow. You've got to connect with it, right? It's, it's almost strange. If you think about the way we deal with bitterness, our instinct is to cut ourselves off from it, right? PTSD, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. I just shut the door on that. I shut out that part of my life. And what God has said, you know, you pay a price when you do that. You're like amputating part of your life. What does it really mean to heal? It means to take that experience back inside of you somehow. What's going to work to take that bitterness inside of you? And the answer is, if you can find something positive, listen to my commands. My fundamental command about what you've been through is love the gear, love the stranger, because you know what it's like to be a stranger. You know all the bitterness that the stranger feels. The stranger feels a bitterness that is very akin to your bitterness. The stranger also hates himself in a way that doesn't make any sense. He can't take care of his kids because he doesn't have a green card. He can't provide for them. He's forced to, what's he going to do? To steal? What do you want him to do? He has no way of making it. He doesn't have any land. He doesn't have any resources. And he hates himself. There's a phantom guilt that consumes him. And he has that same kind of self-revulsion and that same kind of bitterness, you know what that bitterness is like. You know how you're going to cure yourself. You know how you're going to bring the bitterness inside of you. If you can find a way to transmute it into something positive and to transmute it into love, to empathy for the most broken members of society, empathy, the soul of empathy is deep understanding you are in a position to deeply understand what these dispossessed members of societies feel. You can take your bitterness and you can use it for something powerful. And if you do that, you can stand to have it inside of you and you can be whole again and you can be healed. So we were talking about this a while back and you kind of added another layer to this. I wondered if you kind of come back and, and revisit those thoughts. Yeah, so I thought it was a beautiful idea, the idea of taking law and finding law to be curative because you take this awful traumatic experience and you turn it, you weave it into the fabric of your national DNA to your moral character and you find a way to take that trauma and to make sure no one ever experiences what you've experienced. However, in the back of my mind, I wondered if that was somewhat speculative, if there's more evidence. And I did what you often teach us to do, which is, okay, so if there's some shamlo choko mishpat, right, if God placed a law, a uh, chok and a mishpat, my question was, is there an 
earlier chok or mishpat that is taught to us? Was there something, were there some other laws given uh, before this moment? It turns out uh, that there are earlier laws. Just a, a chapter or two ago, back in, in Exodus 12, uh, they actually get their first chukim. So let's actually read that text that we hear in chapter 12, verse 14, um, that this holiday, the holiday of Pesach, of the Korban Pesach, is chukat olam. It's a chok, a precept that will endure forever. But then you pointed out to me that at the very end of this, we actually hear about what this essential chok is with this language, zot chukat Pesach, right? Where is that? 43. And so, so take us into 43. So what actually happened is this whole chapter is pre-Exodus and post-Exodus. So it's it's the laws of the Korban Pesach at the night in which they're being taken out of Egypt. Okay, so this is the law of the Pesach. You've got to be part of the community to eat it. And indeed, you know, as Imu, you and I have talked about together, the Korban Pesach really is the offering that makes us a community. Um, and then says, this is what it means to be an Israelite. It's and what you have is Israel being formed as a nation this night. And and Imo, you'd think that if you had some sort of symbolic vehicle that was responsible for the creation of the nation, your instinct would be that everything about this would be it's all about us. It's about this is only for us. And anybody who has a wisp of being a foreigner. Right has nothing to do with this, and has evidence somebody who's a foreigner, you know, can't do this. But then the text hits you over the head in forty-seven and forty-eight. You hear about this amazing exception to this, something that just kind of boggles your mind. Doesn't seem to fit. There it is. It's it's the gear. The stranger is included. In fact, the stranger must keep the same laws as a natural-born Israelite. The verses say, "Torah achati yela ezrach velager hagar b'tochetan." So you you have a non-Israelite, somebody who's not part of the tribe, and he's kind of hanging out there on the outskirts, but the resident alien makes the Pesach with you, right? And and he's to be treated like a citizen, as long as he can be part of this larger community. That, and it, it seems to be this, this moment where the text is saying, your community is larger than you think it is, right? It's... It's not just those who have exactly the same mitzvot as you. It's those who've dedicated themselves to an upright and upstanding vision and are willing to join you and be a part of you, even as they have differences that they'll celebrate too. And the ger is someone that you bring in and that you connect with on the very night that you celebrate your own nationhood, the thing that you might think excludes them. You don't exclude them. And it lays the groundwork for laws of Mara, Sham, Samla, Choku, Mishpat, the great implicit, not explicit law, the great implicit law of you've just been through all this bitterness, right? Reach out. My mitzvot are good. They will allow you to take that bitterness and do something transformative and positive with it. It will allow you to relate to the gear. No, I, I, just, I went back into this chapter after, after you taught this to me, and I was just so struck by the fact that Here's this people, this ger. The Israelites were referred to as gerim in, in Egypt, and they were cast out, and they were treated terribly, turned into their verminization, turned into their genocide. And as we leave, we have this, this oneness offering, this unity offering, this korban Pesach, which is supposed to be done family by family 
and it is the most patriotic expression you could possibly think. It's, it's hanging the flag outside your house, right? It's the, literally the blood on the, on the doorposts, right? And, and you'd think that when you hang your flag out on your doorpost, right, you would think that it's the most exclusionary thing in the world, right? Patriotism, nationalism necessarily means we are better than everyone else. And yet, you know, in the same breath, it says, Torah achati you actually include the stranger, you include the foreigner. Don't do to others what was done to you. Bring them in. And what's incredible here is that these laws are just taught together. The laws of Korban Pesach, the laws of treating the Ger kindly, and these laws are all taught in, in one succession. The laws of Korban Pesach before they leave, and then the same chapter tells you that they leave, and then it tells you what they do on that night where they're camping in Sukkot. But one of the things that's taught right before the laws about making sure the Ger is included is verse 37, it says, they leave Egypt. Verse 38, right? it tells you that a uh, mixed multitude, people that seemingly aren't Israelites, right? and it says Rav. Rav is a word that was used to describe the threat of Israel. They became very, very many. So what's interesting here is that the Israelites are leaving with their own mixed multitude. There are some Gerim that have come along for the ride. And we're not to treat them as a threat. We're actually immediately told, here's some newcomers with you, and you've got to treat them just the way you would any other citizen. So it's really powerful. It's just this incredible repudiation of the values of, of Egypt in a way that is redemptive, in a way that takes our trauma and our victimhood, and it turns it into moral character. It turns it into what it means to be an Israelite. And in a way, you know, you were talking about before that the redemption really is the theme here, taking that which was bitter and transmuting it. The sickness of Mitzrayim, the machal of Mitzrayim, becomes the macholot, the dances of Miriam, right? The taf that was thrown in the water becomes the tof, right? The timbrels and the flutes that they were dancing with. And the mariam of, of bitterness becomes the joy of Miriam's song. And the terrible evil decrees of the king, right? Which are exclusionary, which are treat the ger as if he's inhuman, becomes no, treat the ger as part of your larger community. And your community is larger than you think it is. And Imu, you know, what struck me as fascinating was an insight by one of our writers, Ami, who really got me thinking about this when, uh, you know, he was doing this work on the Shemona Esra. If we go back to Raphaenu, the words in Raphaenu seem to evoke Mara, the story of Mara. That indeed is where God is spoken of as our healer. But Raphaenu also includes another word, which goes not just back to Mara, but somewhere else in the Torah. Rufainu Hashem Venerathei, Hoshienu Venibashea, Kitihilatenu Ata, that you should be our Rofe, our healer. And then Tilatenu Ata is a strange word, Kitihilatenu Ata, because you are, and I mean, I were struggling to figure out, like, how would you even translate that? And uh, the best translation I could come up with is either because you are our song, or you are our rapture, something, uh, you know, this passionate singing of a song. That's what. It's almost like the taking of the sea goes one step into Mara, almost like the, it, it, it's taken up a level in Mara. Um, and it, it turns out that this word tehila actually comes from somewhere in Chumash. Ami happened to notice that comes from Deuteronomy 10, 12. Hu tehilatcha, he is your rapture, v'hu elokecha, and he is your God who did all these amazing things. <clears throat> so here God describes himself as, as here the text describes God as 
as he is our rapture. But what exactly makes God your rapture? The preceding verses talk about that. And in the preceding verses, God adjures us and says, look, I'm a God who asks things of you. Verse 13, Lishmor et mitzvot Hashem. I ask you to keep the commands of God. And Emu, here's the amazing thing. The text goes on right before it talks about God as Tila to detail what the commands of God are. What are these commands? God says, listen, let me tell you about who I am. I am a God who's osa mishpat yatom valmana. I take up the cause of the, of the orphan and of the widow. Ohev ger, I'm the God who loves strangers. Latet lo lechem v'simla, to give them bread, to give them clothing. And because I love strangers, here's my command. Va'havtem et ager, you should love strangers. Why? Because you were strangers in the land of Egypt, and therefore, right? You should cling to God. God should be the essential, basic staff in your life. You should cling to Him. You should worship Him. You should you should swear on His name. He's everything to you because He loves strangers. Because you were a stranger and He loved you, and you can emulate Him by loving strangers. He is, after all, your rapture. And so I think when the sages brought together this idea of God is our rapture, right, together with Rifainu, perhaps they really were bringing forth this fundamental mitzvah, which they see God as asking from us, is that be like me, right? Love strangers. I loved you. I took you out of Egypt. Use your feeling of bitterness, right, as a vehicle for love to be able to transmute your own bitterness into a kind of loving and giving of those who were in the unfortunate situations that you once found yourself in. So you, you know what a lot of this reminds me of this, just this notion of taking something bitter and transmuting it into, into a more whole uh, and maybe even more beautiful experience. Uh, it reminds me mm-hmm. a lot of the Seder, right? In the Seder, you have uh, the bitter, bitter herbs um, where you kind of experience it separately in, in Maror, you eat it and it's bitter and you have that. Isn't that fascinating that in a way, the whole Mara experience, which the Israelites experienced historically, we experience again every Seder because we're faced with their challenge, which is how in the world am I going to eat this horseradish? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Like I've got a big pile of horseradish. (laughs) I'm going to choke on this. And yet I've got to eat the Mara, just like they had to drink the bitter waters. Right. How are you ever going to do that? And it's almost like you were saying the Seder actually gives you a strategy Mm -hmm. for it, which is kind of crazy. Right. Yeah. Because eventually you get up to Korech and Korech um, takes the, you know, the line uh, in the Torah, literally, Al Matzot Umerim Yochluhu. Um, and it's it's this sandwich, the sandwich with with a few elements. It's got uh, it's got matzah, it's got maror, and it has the meat of the korban pesach. And you eat it all together, and it's kind of refreshing. You take something that on its own that is bitter, and and you put it together with these other elements, with the the great unity offering of the korban pesach. You eat it together, and it transmutes it. It it turns something bitter into something tasty, something enjoyable. And that's God's formula for healing. Right. And all of a sudden you have a delicacy. So, too, in our psyches, we have a delicacy if we take the bitter parts of life and bring them in and transmute them and and become whole and use them in ways that make us ourselves whole. So the bitter parts of life actually make life richer and deeper, which is a profound understanding of suffering. Right. Which is that when suffering is taken alone, it is nothing but suffering. 
but when somehow it becomes part of the rest of life, there's a kind of depth of experience that you have with a sandwich when it's got some horseradish in it that just doesn't exist if all it is is sweetness, light, and candy. It's a meal. And somehow, as painful as that is, that is the path to healing, right? To somehow become whole, to bring suffering into our lives, and to figure out what we're going to do with it to bring this into ourselves. If we can figure out what to do with it in our lives, we can be healed. Yeah, it's remarkable. It's something that um, I need to chew over, uh, no pun intended. But just the idea that um, I think on one level that um, the bitter parts of our lives and the, the terrible things that we suffer somehow give flavor to to the, the rest of our lives. Um, it's a very hard thing to, to understand or to swallow. Again, no pun intended. But um, there's also this this other piece which rides on top of that, which is and if you have experienced bitterness, and if, you've, if you're moving past it or trying to move past it, the best way to do that isn't to bury that deep down, um, because it will haunt you. It's, it's to find a channel for it. It's to find some way to take that bitterness um, and to apply it, right? In, in, our, in our situation, in the situation of, of Israel, um, in as much as they were treated like strangers and treated awfully, we, we invite the stranger in, um, and we... Uh, make sure that they become included as part of our national pride. Uh, but just that 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 uh, larger message is something I, I really want to to think more about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so Emo, I think we're almost there. That we have one final mystery left in this uh, grand saga of Mara, and it is the magic trick. It's the mysterious the tree tree that gets hurled into the water. Somehow, it's got something to do with those little children that another king hurled into the water but why the tree right with its roots floating in the water like what was that mysterious message about and emu we're gonna have to try to tackle that when we come back next time great so in our next session i promise you that we'll all come together the tree rifainu i promise we'll talk about what all this means to us personally during the era of covid19 how to pray for healing during this time how we heal from trauma and we'll set the stage for just what all of this has to do with the Omer. Join us next time. See you then. Hi, this is Rifki, editor for this series. Before you run off, check out AlephBeta.org for more engaging, inspiring Torah. Normally, AlephBeta is a paid site, but in these difficult times, we're making our material available for free for those who need them. So enjoy, on us. That said, if you do have the means, and if you believe in what we're doing, it would mean the world to have your support through this time. Please consider becoming a paid member or joining our producer circle. Of course, if that isn't something you can do right now, don't think twice about it. The most important thing is for all of us to stay connected and keep our community strong.